Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to worship. Um, good to see you all here today, this morning. We've had some beautiful weather lately, and today is another bright day because the sun, the Son of God, is shining right here with us, and we're here to worship and celebrate Him together. I'm Pastor Bruce. Welcome, everybody, if we've not met before. Glad that you're here, and we hope and pray that you'll be touched today by the Holy Spirit and the good Word of God. And with that, we'd like to begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this special day, a wonderful day to worship you, to celebrate life in Christ together, to thank you, God, again for eternal life through what your Son has done for us, that, Lord, by your grace we are saved, our sins are forgiven, that when Christ died on the cross, Lord God, we are set free, free to be loved and to love you and one another. And we know that in this world there's more love that's needed for sure. And we thank you, God, that you've given us a ministry and a calling to reach the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that in this time of worship and celebration together, your Holy Spirit will continue its marvelous work in all of our hearts, transforming us into the image of Christ. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello. Good. There we go. Good morning. Why don't you stand for worship this morning? Raise our voices together to the Lord.
this morning, Lord, that we can come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as your children, to just lift up our hearts, to lift up our, our songs and our worship, Lord, as a gift, as, a, as an expression of our gratitude to you, Lord. Thank you so much for all that you've done, that your glory fills the whole world. 
we see it unfurling in spring. Ah, God, it's beautiful. Thank you, Father. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus of Nazarene and wonder how he can love me, a sinner condemned and free. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Yes, that's exciting. Lord, it is thrilling to know how much you love us. It is exciting. It warms our hearts. It celebrates. And Lord, we tap our toes because we celebrate you and we love you very much. We thank you, God, for the privilege of worship and song. We're thankful, Lord, that your spirit is moving, touching our hearts and minds, Lord God, in Christ Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that you receive our praise and our thanksgivings. And Lord, you hear, too, our burdens. You know what it is that troubles our hearts. And we ask, Lord God, that you continue your holy, mighty, awesome work in our loved ones that don't know Christ Jesus yet, in the world around us where there's pain and suffering and loss. Lord God, may your light shine bright for your glory. This world needs you, we need you, and we're grateful that we know you through Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. Um, please be seated. Got a couple of things to announce. I'd like to have the Tunisia team come on up for the minute for mission. I've got two clipboards here. The Holy Week that's coming up is really pretty busy. And so I've got sign-up sheets if you'd like to participate in our Seder meal, which is coming up in April, the week before Easter. Um, it's the Thursday before Easter, exactly. And um, it's a time to celebrate the Passover, the um, Lord's Supper, to see things through a Christian understanding in the, in the time that Jesus spent with his disciples in the upper room. And we'll be celebrating that, and we'll see Christ's presence in the Seder service. 
and it'll be an exciting time. It's good for the whole family. We hope that kids will come because there's a certain part of it that's really geared for kids. Uh, there's kind of a hide-and-seek event that takes place, and so um, sign on that clipboard, and that way, and if you run out of room, just turn it over and keep scribbling, and then if somebody in the back can make sure the upper balcony gets that clipboard, that would be great. And then we'll pass it out this Sunday and the next Sunday, and then that way we can purchase the proper supplies. And it'll be a fun, pick, uh, fun potluck. We also have, will have a suggested, you don't have to bring kosher food, but if you wanted to experiment with kosher food, we're going to provide menus here in the next week or so for folks to take home and examine. And like Jenny's going to make matzo ball soup. She just said, why not? I'm going to try matzo ball soup. So she's going to have fun with that. So we'll have a setup where they'll have kosher on one end of the table and non-kosher on the other end of the table, and you can decide what you want. It's just meant to celebrate Jesus Christ and to experience it in, a, in Jesus in a fresh new way. So we hope that you'll consider that. Let's have the Tunisia team come on up, and as they're coming up the stairs, a uh, quick announcement. After worship, Jim and Eileen or Dale are celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary today. Oh. Very exciting news. Also, um, you've been praying, perhaps you know about David Scott. Have, I've never heard of anybody yet that's ever had botulism poisoning uh, personally, but I know it's out there. And by, it's not a definitive diagnosis, but everything looks like he ate a meal somewhere and then got botulism and ended up totally paralyzed. I mean, completely. But the other day, he wagged his chin and he stopped when they told him to stop. And then Rebecca told me yesterday that he's moving both of his feet. So it's starting to reverse itself, and he's coming back slowly, but it's a long, long road ahead. So um, I just want a quick, quick prayer for David. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the signs of recovery that we're hearing about with David. And Lord God, we lift him up to you, and Rebecca, his wife as well. God, we pray for restoration. We pray for a speedy recovery and a full strong recovery. Lord God, give them patience and endurance and wisdom. We pray that nobody else got sick and that, Lord God, we thank you already for the miracle of restoration you're bringing him and for the encouragements that that brings to us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Now for some more encouraging words. Okay, I'm not starting quite so encouraging. First of all, good morning. <laughs> Last year was so hard on me. I mean, it was so hard. I'm my mother's only living child, and she had a stroke. So every day I was caring for her through the whole winter and spring, and it's like, I'm supposed to go to Tunisia. I know I'm supposed to go to Tunisia, but mom's so sick. Can I leave? Should I stay? Mom went to live with Jesus. I got on the airplane. She was buried while we were on our way to Tunisia. And it was just so hard. And I felt like a total imposter when I got there because I wasn't really able, you know, emotionally, physically, mentally, anything to be the way I wanted to be. And poor Christine and Jack had to just kind of carry me through a lot of the summer. And I got home saying, it was so hard. It was so hard. I'm too old, I can't do this again. And then a couple weeks ago, I was reading a book and this really famous, really wonderful Christian woman said, I felt like an imposter. I was on the national news and I felt like an imposter. And all of a sudden, it was almost like a 
voice that I heard that said, I'm enough, you're going back. <laughs> so much to my amazement, I am going back to Tunisia this summer. The thing is, I wasn't done. I might feel old, I might feel like an imposter, but I'm still called to do what our Heavenly Father wants us to do. Amen. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's very exciting to have not just Brenda, but also Jack returning. So we are going back again. Woohoo! Woo it's amazing. So we invite you to come alongside us. Um, there are more openings, not just in Tunisia, but many other countries. Um, and if you want to know more about it, please let us know. There is some funding available to support. And I would say never let the money stop you. Never let this feeling of inadequacy stop you. If God calls you to it, he will bring you through it. And it is really amazing to see how he is at work and how he provides even gluten-free pasta in the mi middle of Tunisia. Um, seriously, so it's amazing to see how he works. Um, so we are going back again, and we'll be teaching English. We'll be engaging in relationships. We'll be sharing our lives with each other. And the reason I mention those things to you is that we're called wherever we are to build relationships. Wherever we are to come alongside those near us to share in our lives with one another. So I also wanted to use this opportunity to say, thinking about who is your one? Who is God calling you to come alongside this year? Who is he laying on your heart? Remembering that we are called wherever we are to live and be the hands and feet of Jesus, to come alongside, to build relationship, to have a conversation. Heavenly Father, we just praise you. You are such an awesome God. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. I'm always stunned. You don't need us, and yet you invite us into your work with you. Lord, I just ask that you would come by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that you will be at work in the lives of the students and those will be serving alongside in Tunisia, Lord. We pray for a movement, Lord, that they will feel your calling upon their hearts. Lord, and I pray also for a movement here within our congregation. Lord, may each one of us feel the presence, Lord, of your hand stirring our hearts into service, into ministry right where you've planted us. We thank you, God. We thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. We're going to have the kids stay here for just a little bit longer. We've got a special bell piece with flute, and it's beautiful. We know that the Lord is awesome.
That was fun. I loved it. Yeah, the kids are free now to head down the hallway for Sunday school and Gabe with the middle and high school kids. Youth, we're grateful. Yeah, that was really pretty. Beautiful. I was thinking about uh, music in heaven, too. You know, there's instruments in Scripture referring to our time with the Lord, and it's going to be musical there, too, and it's so exciting that we can practice now and celebrate in eternity with the Lord. It's a gift from God. I'd like to invite us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans. We continue through the second chapter in this book, uh, looking at a wider stretch, 17 to 29. Chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that as we celebrate your name and glorify you, Lord God, to magnify you, not only in our own hearts, Lord, but for the world to recognize you, to celebrate with us the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that your word stands true, that it's strong, that it teaches us the truth, and that this is your word to us. Help us, Lord God, not just to be students, but to really take this to our own hearts. And may it renew our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul writes these words to the Roman Christians, primarily to the Jewish Christian community there in that congregation. Now to you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the, in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you, then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? If you... You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law... You've become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have written the written law and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he's one only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. When I was raising girls, two girls, now I've got four grandsons, so I'm having to retool everything when I'm with the boys. But with the girls, you know, raising them, sometimes they would tell me things that just made no sense at all. They wanted what they wanted, and they were just kind of making stuff up on the fly. And finally, I came up with a pat phrase that I've memorized because I used it so many times. I said, hey, if that doesn't make sense, it's nonsense. 
and I would try and drive home the fact that they're not making any sense to me, and I'm not sure I believe a word they're saying. You know what I mean? And it's just nonsense. And when you look at what Paul is asking of the Jewish Christian community, if what they're claiming and how they understand their condition and their situation with God doesn't make sense, it's just utter nonsense. And so the title of the sermon, If So, Act So. If that's true, then let's see the fruit of it. And this is somewhat what Paul is getting after. You have to remember the backdrop for why this is happening. The Jews at some point had been exiled from Rome, carte blanche, all of them, Christian or non. They were asked or told or ordered by the emperor to leave. There had been rioting and issues. And so the Gentile Christian community was left in charge of the worship services. They did the preaching, they did the teaching, they led the worship. All of that was in that context at that time non-Jewish in that section of the world. Then later on the emperor said, okay, you can come back home. So the Jewish community returned, and now the Christian Jewish community is reunited with the Gentile Christian community, and there was somewhat of an attitude that was going on that the Jewish Christians felt superior or more informed or more apt to teach, more knowledgeable. And so they were looking down their noses, so to speak, at the Gentile Christian community, and the Gentile Christian community is thinking, we got along fine without you. What's up with that? And so the church was somewhat conflicted with the issues that presented their reunion with one another. And so Paul has been working through chapter 2 in particular, looking at how they're all on the same plane, Jew or Gentile. They are all one in Christ Jesus. It's the gospel that brings them together and not their ethnic identity or their having been chosen by God in the beginning as his people back on Mount Sinai and all the exodus from Egypt and all of that, he says that is a wonderful thing and a heritage to be cherished, but it doesn't put you ahead of the others in the Christian community. And so these words start to make sense when we appreciate the backdrop that lies behind them. Now the one thing that we might choose to do if we're just reading it at home is to blow through this really quickly because after all he's talking to Jews and unless you're a Jewish Christian this morning you might think so when does Paul talk to me in every case when there's a specific group of people in mind the principles are all there and they're still applicable for everybody and so I want to look at the positive things that Paul is saying to the Jewish Christian community. He's not being sarcastic in mentioning their benefits, their privileges, but also to put ourselves in that place as well and read it as if we were the audience being referred to and reflect on that for a minute. So I'll do that at the close of part one. So the first part is this. What if you put yourself in their place? What if you put yourself in their place? Let's see how that plays out. There are seven if statements that Paul makes. And it's not if as in maybe yes, maybe no. When the New Testament uses the word if, oftentimes it means with certainty you are and not a question. So if you're Jew, well, of course they are, right? That's not a question. So let's look at the seven and see the kind of privileges that they did in fact enjoy. And all of these have an Old Testament basis for them. So Paul's not being sarcastic 
he's actually saying these are legitimate reasons to, to know that you are a privileged chosen people. Then let's see how it plays out. First of all, he says they're called Jews in verse 17. Jews connected them to Judah, the tribe of Judah, and it was also a nickname that they received when they were in Babylon in the exile, and they longed to go home. They longed to go back to Jerusalem. So the word kind of caught on that you're Jerusalem, you're Jews, and it kind of became a nickname, but still attached to their heritage. And so when Paul identifies them as Jews, he's saying you're the chosen people of God, not to the exclusion of other people, as we'll see, but to be that salt and light in the world, to tell people more specifically about God. And to be a Jew was primarily identified by two things. One was the law, which would be summed up in Exodus 19 to 24, and also circumcision for the male population. And we'll look at that a little later on as well. So first, they're Jews. That's a good thing. Second of all, they rely on the law. That is also a good thing. They don't just have their conscience to guide them, as we looked at the other week, but they have now the written law of God, the, the truth of God, in writing in a way that's very concrete and specific. They had the Mosaic Covenant, for example, that God gave them on Mount Sinai, and again, Exodus 19 to 24. And it's a privilege, isn't it, to have been given this information that then they were to share with the world around them. So they were blessed in that sense, and they knew that. They had received messages from angels, prophets, dreams, visions, and other events that became eventually the entire Old Testament. And they were very blessed to have that. And God, God blessed them with this thing. They also bragged about their relationship with God. Now, when I say brag, or when the NIV translates it brag, what kind of comes to mind? Is bragging a good thing? Ah, it is if you're bragging about God. It's not if you're bragging about anybody else but God. But immediately when we hear the word brag, we think of self-bragging, I'm bragging or someone's bragging. But to boast, which is a synonym, which you can equally translate it as, when you boast about the Lord, when we boast about Christ, isn't worship boasting about Jesus? Praise the Lord. Christ is king. You know what I mean? These are boasts that we make in a, not a prideful, self-centered way, but in a God-glorifying way. And so Paul isn't being critical. He's being complimentary. These are good things. Look, look for example, in Jeremiah 9. It's in your outlines. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but... Let him who boasts, boast about this. God says you can boast, but you're going to boast about this. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. So can we boast about the Lord in a healthy, positive, constructive way? Absolutely. Anytime you share the gospel good news of Jesus Christ, you're magnifying the saving grace of Jesus and the grace of God for the world to recognize. That's like boasting in the Lord, but it's God-centered, and that's a good thing. So again, he's complimenting them. They also know God's will in verse 18. God gives everybody on the planet 
conscience, but sin can taint it, twist it, modify it, suppress it, tarnish it, even scorch it, so there's not a conscience left. They're just lost in the dark and evil. But God gave the Hebrew people the law. And in the law, you find the ethics of God plus the culturally relevant pieces that went with just Judaism that the Gentile Christian community weren't required to do, like kosher foods, for instance. That's why when we do the Seder meal in that Holy Week, we're not going to worry about whether it's kosher or not, but if you want to try kosher, that's great. We're not worried about those, those um, specific regulations that God gave to the Jewish people as his own. They also approve of what is superior. They know right from wrong more clearly than the general population. They can tell what's good and bad because they have the written word that tells them that, and they're blessed that way. They can tell what really matters, and that's a blessing. But with that knowledge comes responsibility. Like in Luke 12, 48, for everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. In other words, we have a responsibility to God, an accountability to God. If we're blessed in some way, we have a talent, a spiritual gift of some sort, we want to apply it. The world around us has taken those words and realized their power and has transformed them into movie scripts and other things. In fact, I found an example in Spider-Man, the movie Spider-Man. Uncle Ben says to Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. With great knowledge, God says, we have also a responsibility to act upon what we know. And that's very instrumental in our life and in the Jewish community as well. So whether it's time or talent or money or spiritual gift, whether it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, anything that God has given us that we've received, we're then responsible for being good stewards or managers of all that God has blessed us with. And we want to keep that in mind all the time. Then also the Jews are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark. In verse 19, and both of those have roots, as I said, all of them do, but I found the specific one that may reference this in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah 42. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you, and I will make you be a covenant for the people and a light for whom? The Gentiles, the non-Jewish community, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Do you see missions here? Are the Jews chosen by God to the exclusion of the world? Which they did, often do. They became privileged, special. We're called, you're not. Good luck to you. We're immune from condemnation on Judgment Day, they might assume, and the world, well, too bad. And every time they got that negative attitude and they forgot the reason they were chosen to be a witness to the world with the specific revelation that God had blessed them with, God dynamited them out of their self-complacency and their self-centeredness. 
the Assyrians came, the Babylonians came, the Romans came. And all of this was meant to disperse them into the world that they should have gone into in the first place with the knowledge and the truth of God. This was God's original missional force that God would use to share the good news with the world around us that were saved by the grace of God. When they were chosen by God, they didn't have any bragging about themselves. They weren't special. God chose the least of all people, a stiff-necked bunch, really hard to work with. And God says, you're it. What is that? That's grace. A gift. Undeserved. They understood what grace was, and they were meant to share this special experience and this special knowledge with the world around them, and many times they didn't. But you'll see it in the Psalms. You'll see it in the book of Jeremiah. You'll see it throughout the Old Testament that they are to be a missional people. When I was in seminary, I took all of my electives in the Old Testament. My theory, and I, I think it's valid, is the more you understand the Old Testament, the more you can understand the New Testament. Because it's not old and dusty and discarded and has been. It's just the first testament followed by a second that fulfills the first. And if you know how they all interplay, it's a blessing. Throughout the Old Testament, what I discovered was, not me personally, like, hey, look what I found, but for myself, I came to the conclusion, as others have before me, that the choosing of Abraham, the choosing of God's people, and the declaration of the law on Mount Sinai, all of it was not meant to be exclusive just for the people he gave it to. It was meant to be a blessing for them, certainly. It's good. But they were not meant to keep it to themselves. They were meant to share it. And that's something that we've got to remember as well. Then they were also instructors of the foolish and teachers of infants. Now, you might think foolish is like the proverb that says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. That's a proverb. But that's not what Paul means. All he's simply saying is, some people just don't have the privileged special information that you have. They don't have the scriptures that you enjoy. They haven't heard a sermon in the synagogue like you have. They're a little bit in the dark. They're infants compared to you in their knowledge of God. It's not a derogatory term. It's not a dismissive term. It's just they don't know God like you do. And you're there to tell them about God even more. Because if you get God wrong, I find in my own experience, when we get God wrong, all kinds of other things go, go wrong as well. Everything gets balled up. And so they want to be able to be teaching the world around them. Now those seven blessings are really just that. They are a privileged group. But again, not just for themselves. They're meant to share this privilege with the whole world. That was God's intention. The problem was a sense of superiority set in. A sense of we're better than other Christians because we're Jewish. There was like an inherent, wow, you're a Jewish Christian? Somehow that elevates you on a platform. It's kind of like when a missionary comes to a church and we kind of elevate their status. Wow, you're a mission. You give, you're in mission. You, you give up a lot. Well, in truth, they did really give up a lot. But they're no closer to God than those that stay home and share Christ. 
They're no different. They're just in a different location. And that's their calling. Just as Christine expressed, and we heard also from Brenda, when God calls, that's where you go. And, and the question isn't, Lord, should I go, but Lord, should I stay? I think that's the better question to ask because that gives everything to God, doesn't it? And we're not meant to just have a holy huddle. I think churches can get really busy with programs and other activities. When I get together with other ministers, what's the classic conversation? How big is your church? How fast is it growing or not? And what kind of programs are you putting on? And nobody seems to talk about, A, how's your outreach in your community at large going? What is God doing in your midst? Right? I'd rather hear those, those two. And frankly, when ministers get together, the big question is, <laughs> what's your favorite medication, seemingly? <laughs> you know, heart medications, cholesterol, whatever it is. I'd rather, wouldn't you rather have God talk? Wouldn't you rather hear what God is doing? A church of 10 people can have a lot of God talk. And a church of 10,000 people can have a lot of God talk. The missing link in 10 or 10,000 is God talk. And that we could all focus on and apply here or in Tunisia or anywhere else God calls us. And we just have to be ready and eyes open, ears open, hearts ready to share and not just keep it to ourselves. That is so important. Now, with the tension that this church is experiencing, the Jewish community does feel special. And Paul's not saying they're not. But he is saying you're at no better condition with God than your Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. You're all one. You're on the same plane. Because he goes on and he says, let's, let's talk about this. You are indeed privileged. Yes, you are. And there's no denying the fact that you've been blessed in these many ways. And there's no denying the fact that God has chosen you to be salt and light in the world. Yes, good. Amen. Awesome. Now let's ask ourselves a question. How you doing? He asks them real specific questions, not meant to be the entire list of questions, but just enough to get them to think, am I living up to my calling? Am I living out Christ's purposes in my life? Am I, am I enjoying my privileges just for selfish reasons, or am I willing to share those privileges with the world around me? Lots of questions. So look at what Paul does. Verses 21 to 22. You, then... Who teach? Do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, i got to stop right there. Robbing temples. We're okay so far, right? I understand that, I understand that, but robbing temples. Well, apparently what they were doing was some of them were going to pagan temples and either stealing idols or simply buying them or something else and taking them home because they're made of precious metals and melting them down for their own commercial purposes. And they're not supposed to do that by Old Testament law. That, that This all lies behind it. To us, it's like, what is that? But this is what they would have understood. Old Testament law, 
not to do that, but they were doing it anyway, seemingly, so Paul mentions it. You who brag about the law, which is good, do you dishonor God, though, by breaking the law? In other words, yes, you have understanding, but you're not applying it, and you're claiming to be superior to the Gentile community that's a believer in Christ, and I don't see it. And in fact, if we're honest, we all fall short of the glory of God, don't we? That's what he's saying to the entire church. Nobody can go home and say, I'm better than you. I'm glad God looks at me with more favor than God looks at you. Nobody can do that because we're humble in Christ Jesus. James 2.10 really puts it forcefully in the New Testament. He's, this is probably one of the more Jewish Christian books in the New Testament that's just really thoroughgoing in its Jewish perspective as a believer in Christ. And James writes something very spot on. He says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, just miss one, one time, is guilty of breaking all of it. It's not on a curve. It's an absolute. And James says, as a Jewish Christian, I know this, he says, if I break just even one little teeny aspect of the law, I might as well have broken them all because now I am a sinner in needing, needing salvation. Now, thank God for Jesus, right? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Because as Romans 3.23 says, and this is where Paul is going, chapter 2 leaves us in this dark spot. The beginning of chapter 3 kind of keeps us in that dark, we're sinners, condition. But when we get to verse 21, then Paul really shines with the good news. But in verse 23 in chapter 3, for all have sinned, including Jewish Christians, and fall short of the glory of God. Presbyterians fall short. Lutherans fall short. Catholics fall short. Baptists fall short. Independent churches fall short. We might brag about our constitutional structure we're Presbyterians. Do you know what that means? It just tells you how we're organized. It just means elders. It's a biblical word, but all it tells you is how we do things. It doesn't tell you necessarily in just that word what we actually believe. So we can call ourselves by any titles we want, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we know Jesus. It doesn't mean that we understand and receive and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. It means that we can be very religious. And the Jewish community was very religious. More so than the Gentile community had ever been prior to coming to Jesus. Maybe as God-fearers worshiping in the synagogue, they might have enjoyed that and adopted those very things that the Jews were doing, minus circumcision. That was something they didn't want to do and actually weren't required to do. But let's look a little bit further. Let's look at the explanation. What he's doing is he's stripping away superior claims to righteousness. They're declared righteous by God. It's not inherent in their very being or in their heritage or their identity or in the law. They thought if they just read the law and really dug in that they'd be okay with God. It's like, I listen very carefully. I know what it says. I've even memorized vast amounts of it. That's good, right? Yes, it is good. Is it good enough? 
with God? No, because I'm still a sinner. And that was what Paul was driving home. They need Jesus as much as the Gentiles do. Nobody can look down their nose and feel superior. And then he talks about how missionally effective are you? He says, because you, you say things and you teach people and you've got this special privilege and you parade it, but your actions don't match your self-identified superiority, the Gentile communities had it with you. They're fed up. And they think the God you boast about is not worth a second look. And Paul puts it this way. And he's quoting Isaiah 52.5. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Why? Who are the you? Because of you, he says. Because the Jewish community is not living up to what they claim and the privileges they enjoy and the mission that God gave them. And because of the misrepresentation of God, the obscuring of it, the lack of love, because after all, let's face it, the law is basically love neighbor and love God. Those are the two big ones, right? This is where we need to take it ourselves. But because they aren't living it out, the world around them says, I don't want anything to do with your God. And you might say, well, what's blasphemy anyway? Blasphemy is any mischaracterization of God or a falsehood. If I say God, the Father, is a literal human being, that's a blasphemous thing to say. If I say that Jesus Christ was a created being and not eternal, the Word of God, you know, if I mischaracterize Christ, then that's blasphemy. And because of their actions, the world has a misunderstanding of God and they blaspheme God. They make jokes about God. They belittle God. There are some Roman uh, drawings or scrapings on the wall where somebody gave Jesus on the cross a donkey's head. That is not a blessing. That's making fun of our Savior Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of blasphemy, and all Paul would say is, let that not be us. Let's not be the cause for this. What's the application? Well, I thought if we put ourselves in the Jewish position, what would we say? Well, first of all, we are called Christians. Great. We rely on the law for ethics, right? Love God, love neighbor. Ten Commandments are a commentary on those two things. We boast about the new covenant of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We're glad to tell the world about our Savior Jesus and the grace of God. We know God's will. We not only have the First Testament, we have the Second Testament. We've got the whole meal deal. We're blessed. We're privileged. And that Bible renews our minds. You know that we know that we know what's most important. We know where our priorities are. That God comes first in our lives. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will follow, right? We know what the Bible tells us. We know that we're salt and light. We know we have a mission. Just as they had a mission. We now are part of that mission to bring the light to the dark world around us. And we can teach the truth of God to the world that suppresses it or partially recognizes it or doesn't want to acknowledge it at all. We can still bring truth. Now, we're on the same path, aren't we? We can say and claim the same privileges. We can look down our noses at others. We might think poorly of others in the church or whatever like that, that we're maybe feeling more right with God or more on target or more on track. Well, there are some things 
truth to that, certainly in terms of truth, but not our standing with God. Because we are all sinners in need of grace, right? We also can't make disciples if we're not discipling ourselves. You can't, you're, if a parent doesn't bring Jesus to their kids in the home and you don't live out your faith, your children will not rise spiritually higher than the water level you keep. It's really important in the home that you, would, you keep moving in your spiritual journey with Christ and that you model Christ to your kids and grandkids. I've got four now, and I, I want to be a part of their lives. I, I want to speak into their lives, praying for them, encouraging them, all the things that we can do to bolster the presence of Christ in their lives. That's so important, and we don't want to overlook it. First Peter, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, not strangers from the world, like let's hide out and stay away from the world, but in it, among them, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. We know we're not perfect. We struggle here and there. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. They won't blaspheme God. They'll give glory to God when he comes. We can try our best, right? But how about you? I'm, I've not done a perfect job of parenting. I've not done a perfect job of grandparenting. In fact, my nickname sometimes, Jenny calls me Grumpy Grandpa um, because they can wear me down after a week or so, right? Um, and I'm good about it, but sometimes it's, I need my space. I'm a little more introverted and three loud... They sound like jet engines in your home, you know? It's just this, this massive roar. And um, sometimes I just close my door and hide out for a while and I can breathe again and I come back out in the fray and I'm good. But, you know, we all have our ups and downs and our pluses and our minuses and the things that are strong and weak, right? We all are like that. So what do we do when we fall short? What do we do if our non-believing relatives or neighbors or co-workers see us sinning? What's the proper response as a believer in Christ? I'm a Christian. We don't sin. Yeah, that'll really work. They'll blaspheme God because we've just misrepresented the gospel. How about if we simply say, forgive me, I blew it. I know I blew it. I accept my responsibilities. I accept the fact that I, I didn't do the things I should have done. Forgive me. Now that is being a Christian. That's being honest. It's being humble. It's being forgiveness-centered, living a life of repentance, which means we want to keep our eyes on Jesus. And when our eyes are off of Jesus, we know where we want to go back. It's inherent in us. That's the Holy Spirit's work, as we'll see shortly in our hearts. The world doesn't need to see that we're pretending to be perfect. The world needs to see that we are authentic. And honesty is not a problem. It's inauthenticity. That's the problem. I think it's good to be honest. If we blow it, say it. Tell your kids. Don't pretend to be perfect. That will create a mischaracterization of God and our own condition. Want to be, but we all fall short sometimes. Where is our salvation? Jesus Christ. 
That's good news. Let's look on. If we sin, we know that we can humbly confess. If we live humbly, then there is no Christian superior to another. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We should see each other on the same plane. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We don't have idols. We don't have favorites. We don't have people we lift up and put on a pedestal as if they're not sinners too. We can learn from each other. We can pray for each other. But we are the humble people of God that seek to honor God in all we are and all we do. We have a missional purpose covered by the grace of God. We are declared righteous by God even when at times we're not. And that's a gift. And the world could use it. We were just talking Saturday about forgiveness. That we forgive others, God forgives us. It's not a conditional phrase. We're covered by God's grace. But I read, oh, several years ago that the psychological community, I think I read it in Psychology Today or something else, the psychology community has caught on to the fact that forgiveness has healing power. Who knew? <laughs> it was like the light went on. Bing! And we've been saying that since Genesis chapter 3. And they're just thinking, look what we found. And then we've just been waiting for them to catch up with us all these many millennia. There's truth in the good word of God. That's the surety of the inerrant word of God that moves hearts, transforms minds, brings light. It's good news. Galatians 3.28, Paul wrote to another church that was falling back into legalisms, gotta do's, salvation, fine, but you needed to do this, you needed to do that. If you, if you didn't do this, you wouldn't be saved. You need to be circumcised, guys, or you can't go to heaven. All kinds of things were going on. And so Paul writes in Galatians 3.8, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, Savior Jesus. This is the key for all of us. Now what about circumcision? Second point is circumcision of the heart. Circumcision. He closes with these very words that are super important to the Jewish community. Almost like if you're circumcised or Jewish, if you're Jewish, you're circumcised, any questions, no, full stop, we're done. And Paul says, that's not going to cut it with God, no pun intended. <laughs> Sorry. Reel that one back in. Now that you've woken up, good. Okay. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. In other words, you're a sinner. And you don't appreciate it and know it and understand it and turn to Jesus. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. And circumcision is a circumcision 
of the heart. How do we circumcise anybody's heart? Paul tells us, by the Spirit, not our spirit, the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on to say, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Circumcision goes back a long ways in the Bible. It goes back to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus. And God, in his Abrahamic covenant that he made for Abraham, made a sign that the circumcision would take place that would identify him as one who was in the covenant. But what you may not realize, and I did some digging on this, is there is a 10-year span between when God made the Abrahamic covenant with him and 10 years later then God said, now I want you to get circumcised as a sign that the Abrahamic covenant started 10 years before. The Abrahamic covenant is in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And in it, he says, you'll be, the, you'll be the father of many nations. And the whole world, all the people groups, will be blessed through you. The key piece is not through ethnicity, because he's not the literal biological father of all the nations. But the entire world will be blessed because he's saved by faith. And it is by faith that Paul wrote in chapter 1, and only faith, that is the means of our salvation, and that is by God's grace, right? We just have to trust that that's the case. And the Holy Spirit's the one that births us from above, that we will believe it. That's an act of God. So it all goes back to God. Abraham, then, is the benchmark that you're saved by faith, not by works. And the whole world will be blessed with this understanding. Ten years later, then, now I want the guys to get circumcised simply as a sign. Not the means and not the method. Just a sign. And if you've ever wondered, well, if men are circumcised, then what happened to the women? Have you ever, you ever wondered about that? I mean, what's the sign for the women if the guys are getting a sign and the women aren't getting a sign? It doesn't matter. The sign is not relevant to being in the covenant. Men and women alike were in the covenant. The men, though, were tasked with carrying the sign. And this is where the Gentile community wrestled with the whole thing. Don't like the sign. I'd like a different sign. Don't want to sign up for that sign. <laughs> right? And you look at what was going on, and it was an impediment. And go back and read Acts 15 for yourself. It was this big council meeting that went into this big debate, and the Jewish Christian community was getting word that Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's ministry was effective. The Christian community was growing, but they're not Jewish and they're not circumcised, so hmm, maybe they should be. And after long discussions, they landed on, thank the Lord, grace. No, Gentile has to be circumcised because now we have a new covenant in Christ Jesus. And that was perfectly right because remember, Circumcision was a sign, not the means. And that's why Paul says, you might think that your circumcision puts you in good condition with God. You're wrong. It's a sign, not the means. Do you have faith? So do Gentiles. Are they blessed by Abraham? Yes. He's drawing the church together in Christ Jesus. Genesis 17, 11 you are to undergo circumcision 10 years after the Abrahamic covenant was made. 
and it'll be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's something to keep in mind. Now, in Paul's time, the Jews came to believe that circumcision was critically and essentially vital to your salvation. And I'm not going to go into all the details because it would take too long, but it goes back to the Maccabean revolts where Antiochus Epiphanes IV made it a capital crime to circumcise boys. In other words, he was trying to wipe out Judaism. And because of that, then, the sign of circumcision became a highly important part of their self-identity. And after the Maccabean revolts succeeded in driving out the Greeks prior to the Romans, the Jews celebrated that and said, see, this is critically important to being Jewish and being in the community of faith. Now Paul comes along years and years later and says, it really doesn't matter one whit whether you're circumcised or not if your heart isn't. He's bringing it all back to we're all sinners in need of grace. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in us is the key means that God provides. Galatians 5, 2-6, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, you Gentile Christians, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace, grace being the key and essential means of our salvation, right? But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Love God, love neighbor. That's what Paul is saying. So then, what is the sign of the new covenant with Jesus Christ? A circumcised heart. The fruit, the evidence the life, the transformation, the maturing of a life in Christ Jesus. Good trees bear good fruit. This is what the Scriptures are saying. Verse 26 then, If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The answer would be yes, because it's simply a sign. If they're living out the law of God, then they're sinless. And if they're sinless, then they're right with God. And if they're right with God, then they're in the covenant. But nobody's sinless. And that's, again, his point. The solution, then, to a physical circumcision is really the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ. To receive and believe Jesus means that the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And that's what Paul says changes a life. Birthed from above, the Holy Spirit lives in us. I always thought it was interesting, and maybe it's just me, but when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we always put the word holy in front of it. We don't say holy Jesus and holy Father and holy Spirit. We say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think the, it might be a matter of emphasis that the Holy Spirit is doing a holy work in us, circumcising our heart. You know what it means to have a heart that's circumcised? The Holy Spirit is cutting away sin. Cutting away the things that we do that are an offense to God 
things we should have done and didn't do, things we did do and we shouldn't have done or said, right? The Holy Spirit then brings that conscience, brings that awareness that we have sinned and fallen short. And how many of us have prayed for God's help not to sin? Have you ever asked for help? You're saying, Lord, carve away that bit of me that I don't want to have in my life because it dishonors you, and it brings a false message to the world I live in. I want them to see Jesus. That's what we know was happening. So verse 29, then, Paul closes with these words. A man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. Not that he knows the law and not that he has been circumcised physically. You're a Jew or a chosen one of God if you're circumcised inwardly by the Holy Spirit that lives within you. And I think you'll have to keep that in mind because when we get later on in Romans, it bears importance in how Paul talks about us as a people of God. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. You can memorize all you want. You can be as religious as you want to be. You can be as privileged as you are, but it doesn't count a whit unless the Holy Spirit lives in you. And how does that happen? It happens by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. One day the Jewish community came to Jesus and they said to him, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do? Did you catch the word do? It's right there in John 6. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Maybe they're hoping for an easy answer. Just be nice. Hold the door for her when she goes through. Something simple, something easy, something we can get our hands on. Give me something to do. And the truth is, it's not what they do. It's what Christ has done for them. This is what he says. The work of God is this, <laughs> to believe in the one he sent. Full stop. So when Paul writes to us, because Romans is not written in a vacuum, Paul knew we'd be reading this. What is Paul's message for us? We're all one in Christ Jesus. There's not a one of us that can look down our nose at a brother or sister in Christ. There's no denominational superiorities, church-sized superiorities, no inferiorities. We shouldn't be worried about that. The question is, what is God doing? How do we boast about the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world we live in? Can we be humble, and if we blow it and sin and the world sees it, can we be humble and admit it that, yes, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I want to honor Christ. I want the world to see Jesus in and through me. And that's a daunting task. But I thank God for grace. And I thank God that we can invite others into that same grace. So if they say, well, what do I have to do to get to heaven? Um, some people talk about a better place or a flip side, and they take it for granted that we're all going there, but we all know inherently that if it's better place, this isn't good enough. What is heaven like? If you get God wrong, you get everything wrong. Paul is spending a full chapter or more talking about the holiness of God and the fact that we don't measure up, that we're not perfect. Then how do we bridge that gap? How do we get there? 
receive and believe the good news that all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, by trusting that Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and has made us right with God. And God declares us righteous even in times we know we're not. That is a tremendous gift. And that sets us free. And that allows us to love. That allows us to love and not hide. Love God and love our neighbor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that no matter what church we grew up in, no matter what church we attend now, no matter how we feel about ourselves, Lord God, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Help us to keep our eyes and ears open for opportunities in the world around us, whether it's here or in Tunisia or any other place, that, Lord God, we can boast about you, that we can bring to people's attention your living presence and that they can understand their need for a Savior. Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit's at work. We're not alone. We also thank you that we do fall short, and yet you live within us. Your Holy Spirit is right here, right now, cutting away the things in our lives that we know we shouldn't be doing or we know we should be doing. Lord God, trim away what doesn't matter and, in fact, what is sin in our lives. You declare us righteous. Help us, Lord God, by your power to live into it, to give you glory and praise. Thank you for being so patient with us. Thank you for your love that never fails. Thank you, Father, for eternal life. Thank you that we don't want to fall back into works. We are saved by grace and grace alone. It's a free gift that you've given us. And we, we receive it right now. And thank you that if we haven't done it before, right now we believe Christ died on the cross setting us free, that we have eternal life, and it's all a gift. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the love of the Father and the sacrificial grace of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now, guaranteed, through Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people could say, Amen. Come on down and celebrate the 60th with Jim and Eileen. Have some fun. Enjoy each other's company.